Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Amy Keene, and this is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. We're thrilled to be back from a short hiatus, and on this episode, we're taking a look at yet another possible financial bubble that's causing some investors to wonder if the boom time is coming to an end. Private equity has flooded the deal market in recent years, and it's owed in no small part to an era of cheap debt and fund managers on the hunt for greater returns on their investments. Firms are scooping up stakes in oil pipelines and newspapers, even dental clinics. And with a record $1.8 trillion in pension and sovereign wealth fund money waiting to be invested, some analysts are asking when private equity's winning run is going to come to an end. Hey, Javier, who is John Gray? So John Gray is a star deal maker in private equity and more specifically at this buyout giant firm called Blackstone. He has led some of the largest private equity deals of our times. That's the FT's European private capital correspondent, Javier Espinosa. I spoke to him down the line from London, where he's been reporting on the private equity boom. He joined Blackstone straight out of college in 1992, when Blackstone was only managing $1 billion. And now the firm, it's roughly $434 billion of assets under management. Private equity has this myth about it that people who are in it are very aggressive executives who, you know, do whatever it takes to get the deal done. And uh, that's the case uh, with many of the people that I meet on a day-to-day basis. But John Gray, who I've met a few times, it's actually someone that you'll be very hard-pushed to not like. He's one of the most likable guys in the private equity world. And what's one of the deals that he's perhaps best known for? He is best known for the acquisition of a company called Equity Office Properties. was a group of uh, landmark properties that included things like the Ferry Building in San Francisco, an office park in Santa Monica, a 32-story office tower in downtown Boston. So just a, a, a number of properties that... Uh, were part of this portfolio, which the deal was worth $39 billion, which it acquired in 2007 at the height of the boom years. Javier told me that, like a lot of private equity deals, even though the value was a staggering $39 billion, Blackstone only put up about $3.8 billion. The rest came in the form of debt. Not very much of uh, actual real money. Meaning Blackstone didn't put up very much of its own cash and instead raised substantial debt to fund the rest of the deal. This was considered one of the biggest leverage buyouts at the time. But it was also, as Javier said, 2007. 
It was the peak of the real estate cycle, and here was John Gray with a brand new portfolio of office space in the U.S. And then quickly, John Gray and his team realized that half of the portfolio that this company had was not worth much, and they essentially, in a matter of weeks, started selling these properties that they didn't deem to be too profitable. He said, we spent one minute drinking to celebrate, and then we hit the phones. It was an historic day with Wall Street shaken to its very foundation today. More than half of the S&P 500 right now are at 52-week lows. Whatever money you may need for the next five years, please take it out of the stock market right now. And then the real estate market starts to slide. It's 2008. We're heading into the depths of the crash. John Gray and his team got pretty lucky flipping these office properties as soon as they did. Yes, and I guess this is uh, there's a bigger point, which is that this is a very cyclical industry. So, but when the times are good, there's like a lot of financing available. Private equity groups have no problem going to the banks and asking them for money to finance their deals. On the other hand, they have also investors, you know, large pension funds willing to give them all the money that they want to invest in the company. So it was a combination of being smart, but also, you know, timing these things in the the right way. Javier said Gray and his team continued to flip the remainder of the equity office portfolio right up until 2017. All told, they tripled their original $3.8 billion stake. So Javier, Gray and his team might have gotten away unscathed, but what was going on in other parts of the private equity market during the recession. So the industry went from being this sort of well-oiled fundraising machine, raising record amount of cash, having really the greatest time investing record amount of money, getting all the debt and all the financing that they could, to really struggling to raise a fund. In some cases, you know, it went from being able to raise a fund in a matter of months to, in some cases, struggling to raise money for like at least two years to raise one fund if you were lucky enough to actually receive investment. So there was a point in time where you were turning money away from investors because you didn't have the capacity to actually invest it to being lucky if an investor even invited you over for a cup of coffee. And gradually, as things picked up, as interest rates went down, which meant that debt became cheaper to obtain and more money filtered through with quantitative easing and pension funds become under pressure to deploy the capital that they have and allocate to different sectors, private equity is back again having the best time of their lives. If you fast forward to 2018, Gray is now running Blackstone, which is the largest private equity group in the world. He was bringing in so much revenue to the business that he uh, eventually, uh, earlier this year, became Blackstone's president and CEO. Heir to co-founder and chairman Steve Schwartzman. And in January, he 
presided over the largest leverage buyout since the financial crisis. It was a $20 billion deal where Blackstone bought a majority stake in the financial terminals and data business of Thomson Reuters. This really harkens us back to 2007, 2006, and 2007, which was dubbed the golden age of private equity here. Making the U.S. money manager essentially a direct competitor to Bloomberg. So what this deal meant is that Schwartzman, the founder of the Blackstone Empire, was is now going to compete against fellow billionaire and former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg, who is, is now the leading or the dominant uh, figure in uh, Wall Street's financial information industry. But what's interesting is that despite the huge $20 price tag, the deal was actually put together with very little real money. So Blackstone, alongside two large institutional investors, put $3 billion in cash, but $14 billion of new debt is currently being raised. What is it about this piece of the Thomson Reuters business that would appeal to Blackstone and their investment strategy? If you think about this, Blackstone is one, the, if not the biggest fee paying on Wall Street. So bankers, lawyers, etc., they rely so much on the fees that Blackstone pays to execute their deals. So the thinking goes that uh, now that essentially Schwartzman owns this terminal business, uh, it's not going to be quite explicit, but if you want to be doing business with them, it might be a good idea to buy also their terminal. So they're going to try and uh, that way sort of compete uh, against Bloomberg. What happened after the transaction uh, came to light in January is that people started sort of raising the alarm and becoming increasingly worried that we are essentially seeing a repeat of history and that many of these transactions, like the one that Blackstone uh, led with Thomson Reuters, are not going to end up well as they are acquired with, uh, you know, easy financing and with very sort of rosy assumptions about future growth. Javier, can you explain where the money is coming from and how it's created this seemingly unstoppable private equity engine? Most or a large chunk of this money is coming from large institutional investors, which include sovereign wealth funds and pension funds. So if you think about it, this means that private equity groups really are not investing their money. They're investing other people's money. They're investing uh, the pension funds of firemen, uh, teachers, policemen, you know. Uh, professionals who are hoping to have a comfortable retirement. The reality is that we have lived over the last decade in an era of very low interest rates. So this means that if I'm a pension fund and I'm managing uh, the money of the, all these teachers and all these other professionals and I need to need to hit a th certain threshold, I need to make more aggressive decisions in where I put my money. So 
Uh, yeah, we saw a sort of like a slowdown in everything after the financial crisis when everything stopped. But in the last few years, people have had to become more comfortable with risk. And so this is just part of the cyclicality of the whole thing. It's as if people have very short-term memories and they're, again, sort of putting their money in uh, riskier asset classes. And this is why private equity has benefited so much. So if we look outside these two sort of pillar Blackstone deals, pre-recession and, and today, what else are these firms scooping up? Can you give us a sense of the scale of the money at work? Private equity groups are aggressive financial animals who are agnostic about what they buy. They can buy mm -hmm. dental practices, veterinarian clinics, newspapers, you name it. Anything and everything is up for sale and they are just looking to find opportunities where they can buy a company, hold it for two, three years make it look shiny, and then sell it on to somebody else, get their returns off the table, and then move on. The the pace and the frenetic pace of uh, buying and selling companies uh, these days, sort of fueled by cheap debt and fueled by this desire of investors to put their money to work somewhere because they can't get the returns that they want, in some of the other traditional asset classes, you know, it's just translated into a big party for private equity groups. Champagne's flowing. That's right. And when you say making these companies look shiny, what we're really talking about is cutting costs, getting operations in order to boost profits. Making it look shiny actually means different things depending on where you sit on what you think private equity does. So if you're a private equity executive, you would argue that you are a good owner and that you deserve to own this company because you are going to grow the business, expand the offices or the product offering. So that's one part of it for a more cynic sort of view of what private equity groups do when they buy companies is that they look for synergies, which is a fancy word which, which means putting together companies, say, for example, a lot of dental practices and finding ways in which you can cut costs by just having one HR department or one IT department. Or, you know, essentially, yes, as you were alluding to, uh, getting rid of people that you don't need to run the thing more efficiently. So we don't mean to be doomsday thinkers on this podcast, but just to extend your party metaphor a bit longer, what happens when the champagne stops flowing, when the music stops, the lights go on? What is it that some of the sources that you're talking to, what is it that they're worried about? People are worried that debt, which in good times magnifies returns and it's a good thing. So if you uh, only, you know, have a 95% mortgage and you're in full employment and your business is doing well, you're not going to be in any trouble in meeting your down payment. But if you lose your job and you're still stuck with this 95% mortgage and consumer confidence goes down, then you're going to be in a tricky situation. So we already saw, for instance, Toys R Us went under and it was owned by private equity. And the company has actually was facing 
competition from people like Amazon. So that was a genuine sort of threat to its business model. But also in the filings, when it filed for administration, also cited expensive debt services as another reason for not making it through. So the company spent $250 million a year servicing a $5 billion long-term debt, which the company said was basically not a sustainable situation. So people are worried that this is going to be the case when companies are faced with uh, trading tough conditions and they find themselves, as a result, unable to repay the high levels of debt that they are currently sort of part of their capital structure. So the fear is about how well these newly acquired, newly indebted companies are going to be able to weather, you know, any kind of incoming economic storm, be it Amazon taking over their corner of the market or, or what have you. Couple that with rising interest rates. And the question becomes, will these companies be able to stay afloat? Or will the debt that short-term private equity support has given the companies actually make it a bit tougher to survive? And so in pumping these companies with debt, is private equity money, at least at its current level, not just creating a bubble of its own? Well, I don't know if this answers the question, but there is a, a worry and, and people are looking at private equity attentively because it tends to be the case that when we see huge periods of expansions, uh, economical, financial expansion, we tend to see asset bubbles. So if we are indeed... Uh, living through an asset bubble in in the form of private equity, this is like a telling sign or a warning that we may be heading to just a similar crash in, in the wider sense of the world as we did a decade ago. The, the big question that we don't know is whether this is an asset bubble, whether we're living in a bubble. People that I speak to, like uh, Howard Marks, who's a, a guru in value investment, argues that we are close to uh, being in 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 that situation. He he doesn't like the term bubble, but he says that it's worrying. So, what happens in the meantime? In the meantime, we're just going to continue to see some of the biggest deals that, you know. Uh, we've witnessed in the last decade just some jaw-dropping uh, deals like the Blackstone acquiring a unit of Thomson Reuters earlier this year or Carlyle buying a chunk of uh, Axel's chemical business, which was their largest uh, deal in Europe in the last decade. We are going to continue to see funds being raised for anything under the planet we i will continue to write about billions being spent and billions being raised because there is no end in sight they people in the industry thought that uh brexit or trump being elected we're going to derail confidence uh, you know we were expecting a, a major correction in the stock market but none of this seems to be playing out and there was a report put out by Bing Capital that showed $1.8 trillion is sitting around waiting to be invested. So the worry is that because they are sitting on so much money and the incentives of private equity managers is to actually get paid 
once they have invested the money that their clients have given them, that they are going to be under pressure to either buy things or companies that are not going to be as profitable or go into riskier investments, which is essentially just betting the house on hopefully getting a winning deal. And that may not lead, you know, to the best outcome for everyone. Thanks for your time, Javier. You can read more from Javier and my other colleagues covering private capital on FT.com. We've linked to Javier's recent big read in our show notes. I'd love to hear what you thought of this week's episode and if there are any stories you think we should be digging into on Behind the Money. You can email behindthemoney at FT.com or tweet me at Amy P. Keen. That's A-I-M-E-E. We'll be back next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.